Good morning. Welcome this holiday weekend. Uh, my name is Jerusalem, if you don't know me, and, and most of you do, but if you don't know me, some of you may keep up with me on Facebook and Instagram. And if you do, then you know that I do a lot of traveling around. Um, I do a lot of traveling and speaking with my work as a writer, and um, I speak and write mostly in the Christian formation realm. I talk a lot about taking faith from something we do to something we live in the context of home and in church and in just our everyday lives. As I have traveled and spoken and listened at the conferences that I have been at over the past few years, there has been one theme that has been rising to the top. One question that everybody is asking from children's ministers to people who work with our wonderful senior population, everyone is asking, how can we form, how can we help people be lifelong spiritual formation? You know, how can we do lifelong spiritual formation? That's what I'm trying to say. It's a big chunk to get out. How can we help people, help children specifically, be so invested in their faith that after they go to college and maybe sleep in on a lot of Sundays and have their time away, they want to come back. They want to be part of church still. And then how do we continue to grow with them? So this is the big question that nationally is being asked. And it's being asked across the board. It's not just being asked by Episcopalians. It's being asked by everybody. And so a lot of research has been done in probably the last 20 years, the last 10 years specifically. I mean, there's been studies going on for a long time. But they've been tracking people, specifically Gen X and lower, to ask, you know, what were the things that helped create uh, lifelong connections to the church and people? What were the things that formed ch in children, in our youth, that then helped them stay connected to the church as adults? And here's what the research is telling us. There are three main things that will keep someone connected to the church, and they all start in childhood. The first one is, are the children, were the children, a part of the larger worship experience? All the research shows us that children who are actually in church services with adults, who participate, who are oblationers or lectors or sing in a choir on a regular basis, not children's choir, but in a choir, who serve at an altar, who are ushers and greeters and those sorts of things. Those children who are a part of the every Sunday day, Sunday morning worship service tend to be more involved in their church over the course of the lifetime. That's the first thing. The second thing the research shows us is that children who develop close friendships, mentor-type relationships, um, kind of extended family relationships, if you will, within the church, besides their youth minister, their Sunday school teacher, or their priest, when children develop close relationships with other adults in the church that they feel they can confide in, go to, laugh with, who see them, then those children grow up to be people who are more connected and invested in the church. The third thing is children who grow up in homes where faith is practiced in some form. Now, this does not mean homes where like liturgy is redone <laughs> all the time, where dinner prayers are said, where bedtime prayers are said, where maybe they do a couple of different things during the year, like an Advent wreath, 
where uh, they serve as a family, where they're just having conversations in the car after church about maybe what you did. Just where faith is part of the ongoing conversation in the family. Those are the three things. What it means is, is that for a long time, we have seen children's programs and youth programs well-intentioned. Let me just say that everything that's ever been done in the church, for the most part, has been done out of the best intentions, right? We're just trying to figure it out. We're all just trying to figure it out. But one of the models that has come along has been the silo model, which is everybody gets put into their own age group. Right? We're just all, and especially children. Children and youth get put into their own age group with their own age group and they spend 18 years in a separate part of the building only with each other having fabulous experiences. Don't get me wrong. I mean, some of these programs are amazing. But then when they turn 18 and we say, you're invited into a big church, they're like, that's not my church. My church was over here and now you've kicked me out. And I don't know anybody. I don't have any relationships. All my relationships are over here. I don't have relationships with these people. I don't know what you guys are doing. I don't know why you're doing it. I feel completely uncomfortable. We didn't do this in my church for 18 years. So there's this whole thing that's happened, well-intentioned, but we've siloed each other off, and we don't have relationships with each other. Now, I will say that when I go to these conferences, and I sit in these workshops, and I listen to the research come through, and I listen to what people that we need to be doing, I do get very excited about St. Peter's when it comes to the worship service portion. We do this part well. We get an A. We have kids in our services. We have kids opening the doors and bringing the bread and wine and serving at the altar and reading the scriptures and we don't mind if they're crying, if a toddler's on the floor. I mean, it happens. If cups are being dropped all during the morning. I mean, that's just part of having kids. We do that part really well. Now, the, inter- the intentional intergenerational portion. This is one of the big things. In fact, almost every conference I have been to over the past three years has had at least one workshop on how to do this thing, this new thing, called intergenerational ministries. It's even becoming like a word that we're all adding to our dictionaries. Intergenerational. Now, intergenerational ministry is not the thing as multigenerational. Multigenerational means we are all sitting side by side. We're a multitude of ages in the same room. Intergenerational means we are all intentionally learning and growing and worship and playing. We're doing all those things with intention together. And it takes a shift. It takes a huge, big culture shift. And this is a conversation that's going on nationally. Because what we're finding is we need to get better at being intentional about being together and learning from each other and giving to each other. And we did this at Lent. We've been doing baby steps towards this. During Lent, we had a six-week program on Wednesday nights that was adults and youth and children, and we sat around tables all together. I wouldn't let just the kids sit together, and I wouldn't let just the adults sit together, even though everybody was really tempted to do that. I had a strategy. I was prepared. And we all sat together, and over those six weeks, relationships were formed. Conversations were had. It was beautiful, but it was weird and uncomfortable in the first few times, right? Like, anything new is weird and uncomfortable. It takes us a while to shift and to learn and to change. We have also started trying to really help our families find new and small ways of practicing faith at home. There's a new thing going out called We Faith, which every other week will give parents and families 
four different ways that they can interact with their kids about faith, podcasts they can listen to, printables they can download, videos they can watch, activities they can do out in the community. Just four ways. And just pick one. Like out of those four, pick one. Have that conversation. Listen to that podcast together. That sort of thing. These are just some small ways. So we're getting there. We're baby stepping. And let me just say that if faith in the home, if you feel like you did not get the chance to do that, it's okay. Again, we're all learning. Like we're all learning. It's okay. In fact, my generation, we are having to do this now. We are having to intentionally work on faith transferring in the homes because it wasn't taught for a couple of generations. It got outsourced to the church. We decided that the church was responsible for all faith formation and that they could do it better than homes. But all the research says that no matter what, faith is formed at home. That you're going to form it one way or the other. So it's better to be intentional about it. And that the church is your supplement, is your support system, is the thing that feeds into what you're already doing at home. Again, that's an ideal situation. It's a big idea, right? It's a little overwhelming. And some of us sitting here this morning are saying, okay, that's either blowing my mind because like, it's too big, <laughs> and all of this sounds really weird and awkward you know, to be around kids more, or to have intentional relationships. And let me tell you, we're going to redo confirmation a little bit and go back to the original intention, which is there are sponsors and mentors for confirmation. Confirmand should have actual sponsors and mentors who form relationships. And so I'm going to be sending out some laser eyes coming in August. And I hope you'll rise to that occasion and be willing to help form our children into lifelong church members. Okay, so it is a little overwhelming. It is a little daunting. Especially when we think of these things during times of transition and times of change. There's a lot that could seem really daunting right now. But that brings us to this week's gospel. Our gospel today comes at the end of Matthew chapter 10. A chapter that's all about Jesus commissioning the disciples. And he is really, you know, Jesus has been laying it out for them. He's getting ready to send them out. He's been giving them kind of some hard news, you know. This isn't going to be easy. This is the task. People are going to spit on you. They might not like you. I mean, he is really trying to prepare them for what it's going to entail to go and do this really big, huge thing. But we got to read the last few verses. This is what comes at the end of Jesus' big commissioning. It's some hope. I love the message version of the Bible. It is not an academic translation, but it's kind of a retelling of it in more modern language. And I really love to read um, the Gospels particularly. I don't like to read the Psalms. It takes all the romance out of it, but poetry. But I really love to read the Gospels. So let me read today's Gospel out of the message translation. We are intimately linked in this harvest work. Anyone who accepts what you do accepts me, the one who sent you. Anyone who accepts what I do accepts my Father who sent me. Accepting a messenger of God is as good as being God's messenger. Accepting someone's help is as good as giving someone help. This is a large work I have called you into, but don't be overwhelmed by it. It is best to start small. Give a cool cup of water to someone who is thirsty, for instance. The smallest act of giving or receiving makes you a true apprentice. You won't lose out on a thing 
Here we see Christ throwing the disciples a lifeline, one that they can hold on to any time they feel like they are drowning in the midst of this call and this mission, this new work that they've been commissioned to do. First, Christ reminds them, and by extension us, that we are all linked together in this work. We are linked to each other and to Christ and to God. None of our identities are truly rooted in our talents or our strengths or our IQs or our charm. The disciples' identity and our identity instead lies in the fact that we are beloved. Something Christ had said to them earlier in this chapter. We are beloved children of God. Before we are useful or talented or anything, we are called beloved first. I think this is an important message for churches as well as individuals. We need to remember us as a parish, as St. Peter's, that our identity is not in our building or our programs or our membership rosters or even our leadership. Instead, it is that we are children of God together. We, St. Peter's, no matter what we do, how successful we are, we are beloved. The second thing I see Christ doing in this passage is reminding the disciples that receiving is just as important as giving. Christ is reminding the disciples to remember that not only are they beloved, but so are those whom they will serve. Not only do they have gifts and wisdom to share, but those who they will go out and share to and with also have things to give, also have wisdom. That's one of the things we learned during Lent. And we are a big doing church. We do a lot. And it's amazing work. We can also remember that we can receive. The final thing that I notice is that Jesus closes out this commissioning by reminding the disciples to start small. To do whatever they can, however they can, with whatever they have, with whomever they're with. Even if that simply means giving a cup of water to someone who's thirsty. Jesus is reminding the disciples not to get so focused on the big, great, important task. That sometimes when you do that, when you're so overwhelmed and focused and pulling your hair out and worrying about the big thing, that you miss whoever it is right in front of you that needs a glass of water or a child who's trying to reach a water fountain. Following Christ, being a healthy, vibrant church, fighting for justice, providing food for the hungry, caring for our children's faith formation. These are big, great, important tasks. And if we're not careful, we'll become easily overwhelmed. We'll silo ourselves off. We'll stay where it's comfortable and in what we know. We will forget that we are beloved first before we are useful. We will forget that the people we are sitting next to are beloved. That the man in the Walmart parking lot with a cardboard sign is beloved. That the family coming to the food pantry is beloved. That the children screaming down the hallway are beloved. We can also, in our panic, we can think that we won't be able to accomplish everything we need. We forget that not only are we the givers, but we are also the receivers. That we need to be open to receive from each other from our community, from the youth, from the kids, from our food pantry clients. And we all need to remember to start small, to do what we can, where we are with what we have, with whomever is with us. Everybody should have got a cup, or close to everybody should have got a cup. You want to find your cup and lift your cup up? Raise your glass. (laughs) 
This is our reminder to start small. This cup right here is all we need to start with. There are markers out in the lobby in the narthex. You can put your cups down now if you want. I don't have anything to pour in them. I'm sorry. Uh, there are markers of every color out in the narthex in the lobby in the entryways. And after the service, I would encourage you to go find a marker and on one side of your cup write give. And on the other side write receive. Sometimes it's the same cup that we're emptying and receiving into. Sometimes we think we need to give big or receive big, but we just need to start small. Take this cup home. Put it in your window over your kitchen sink, next to your bed, on your desk at work. And when you see it, remind yourself to say a prayer. Lord, what do I need to give? What small thing do I need to start with? Where do I need to receive? Who do I need to receive from? What do I need to be giving towards? And remind yourself that while some of the tasks before us seem very big and overwhelming, together we all start small. We have a lot, and the Holy Spirit will move through us. Amen.